The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. talk this morning about blessings and curses. And this is probably not going to be a typical uh, Sunday morning sermon for a couple reasons. One, <clears throat> this is going to be part sermon and part personal testimony. So if you find yourself wondering why I'm talking so much about myself, <laughs> uh, it's not because I love myself so much, even though my wife might argue against that. Um, it's because I like to share about what God's doing in our lives, what God has done in our lives. And two, I'm going to try to cover three chapters of the Bible today. I know that's very ambitious. I'm not going to read all the text, but I'm going to summarize large portions of it for us. So uh, please bear with me. There's a lot to unpack, but um, I think you'll be rewarded if you, can, if you can stay along. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, your great love towards us. Just as we sang, Lord, you're so good. And uh, we come here and we worship you because you are so worthy of our worship and more. And Lord, we just pray that um, your spirit would come, speak into our hearts. We receive your word and live it out in our lives that we might be uh, the light and salt that you've called us to be. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, acceptable to you. My rock and my redeemer, it is in your name we pray. Amen. So in 2012, uh, New Year's Day actually fell on a Sunday. And I know this because I remember distinctly being at church, worshiping God, just like we did. And just thankful for a new year and looking forward to another new year. And the very next Sunday, I remember January 8th, 2012, uh, I'm not at church. I'm in the ICU. And um, talking to an oncologist in in very hushed tones, he's telling me that my 35-year-old wife, Kim, uh, has stage four cancer. And um, that's life in a nutshell, I think. You know, one moment you're just humming along, life is good, and the next moment you're blindsided by something so unexpected that it literally takes your breath away. You know, one Sunday you're feeling blessed and you're thanking God, and then the very next Sunday you feel as if maybe you're cursed, or you find yourself doubting, wondering, what is God doing? And today I want to talk about the life and the perspective of the believer, of a child of God, How do we process the good and bad in our life? How do we handle hardships and trials as believers? How are we to view blessings and curses? I brought uh, my favorite pair of sunglasses today. Uh, They're Oakley's. Metal frames, iridium lenses, $300. That's how much it costs. Now, before you pass judgment on me for spending this much money on sunglasses, let me share with you first how I got them. 
In 2006, Kim uh, and I were shopping, window shopping at Deer Park Mall. And uh, I picked these up, and I tried them on at the Sunglass Hut, and I think you have to admit they look pretty good on me. <laughs> and then I looked at the price tag, and it was 300 and I was like, forget it, no way. The most money I'd ever spent on sunglasses up to that point was like $20, because I don't want the pressure of having to, you know, not lose them. <laughs> So I always get these $20 cheapos from Menards or whatever. And so Kim suggested, I remember after I put them down, she said, why don't you just get them? You know, she's all about quality. I'm all about value. So um, I was like, no, they're, they're way too much. And she said, you know what? You, I just finished up my MBA that spring. And she was like, why don't you just get it as a graduation gift for yourself? And thought about it. And I was like, nah, it's too much. And so we walked out of the store, and I didn't really think about it again. And a few days later, um, I got an award at work. I worked at GE Capital, and, won, and you can win awards. You know, I worked on a special project, I think, to help another team out. And, and I found out that I, I got an award, and it was a financial gift. And guess what? It was $300 after taxes. And so I was like, wow, what are the chances? And so I remember I told Kim that night, I was like, you know, I won an award for $300. I think God wants me to buy those sunglasses. <laughs> and she agreed. And who am I to stand against the will of God? <laughs> so I went out a couple days later and I bought these sunglasses. And then um, I walked out. I remember the following Sunday, this is not three, four days later, uh, I was playing in the inner church softball league. I'm sure you all are familiar with that. And this is the first game with these, with these sunglasses. And I put them on. And, and everyone, you know, we're taking batting practice before the game starts. And I start running out to feel, looking, feeling really good. Looking good, I hope. And I got just past the shortstop. I remember turning my head because someone said, look out. And I got hit by a screaming line drive. Boom, like right on my right eye like squarely on my right eye. And it felt like Mike Tyson in his prime had just punched me in my right eye, literally. And I didn't even know what hit me. <clears throat> and my eye immediately started to swell up, just swell shut, completely shut. Here's a picture, actually. Uh, this was actually two or three days after the fact, so it, it looked worse than this, believe it or not. <laughs> Dr. Steve's eyes probably look worse than this right now, but this is how bad it looked a couple days after the fact. And, you know, I share this story with you because I think it's easy to look at something like that. I mean, 200 feet away, I get hit by a line drive. It hits me literally right in the eye. I remember I um, was, like, in a lot of pain, recovering, and, and then, of course, being a frugal guy, I was like, I got to replace these lenses. It's going to be expensive. So I called Oakley, and I was, like, telling them, you know, about my story because I was like, I got a cool story for you. You know, your sunglasses saved my eye, and they were very unimpressed. Apparently, this happens all the time. And, like, these are, like, really nice sunglasses. Like, even in Iraq, people get hit by shotgun, and their eyes survive somehow. So they did not comp me for a new lens. I had to pay $60 for a new lens, but I got it replaced. And um, I'm sharing this with you because, you know, people will look at this picture and they'll say, man, what are the chances? You must be cursed, right? How could it hit you, like, right in the eye at the perfect time, 200 feet away? And 
But if you know the whole story like me, I'm sure you can see the providence of God and the great blessing of his protection, even in a pair of high-priced sunglasses. Uh, you know, I grew up in St. Louis. Uh, there was this older Korean lady um, who won the lottery. She was, like, ready to retire. I mean, she's worked hard her whole life. And she played the lottery, and she won $5 million bucks. And I remember everyone thinking, wow, she's so blessed. Just as she was about to retire, like $5 million. And as I'm sure you could probably guess, within, a, within you know, two, three short years, totally bankrupt. She made a lot of foolish decisions with her money, um, bad investments. And then in the end, she was worse off than she was before she won the lottery. And someone would look at this woman when she won that, had that winning ticket and probably said, you know what, this woman is, is blessed. God must really love her. But the truth is, I don't know. Looking back at that now, I don't think that was a blessing at all. I think it was a curse. And so it's so easy for us, I think, you know, Christians or not, to look at a situation and to try to evaluate it right away and try to say, this is a blessing, this is a curse, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. God is doing this, God is doing that. You know, a few months ago, Dr. Steve, when he was speaking on Luke 13, uh, spoke about, you know, the Tower of Siloam and how, you know, all these people, these Jews were trying to figure out why did 18 people die when that tower fell? You know, they must have sinned. Tell us, is that why, Jesus? And he said, no, that's not why. And he tells them, you know, you just need to be reminded that life is short. You have to repent and believe. And so this isn't just happening to us. This happened even in Jesus' day. They look at a situation, they see a catastrophe, a tragedy, a hardship, a trial, and immediately they want to make an assessment. That's a blessing. That's a curse. That's good. That's bad. God loves you. God doesn't love you. And you just end up spinning in circles trying to figure it all out. And, you know, when something bad happens to us, I think it's easy to often say, you know, God, what are you doing? We waste so much time, energy, thought, in trying to figure out what God is doing, why he's doing it. You know, am I doing something wrong? If not, why are you wronging me? So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Numbers chapter 22. This is a story about Balaam and Israel, but it's really about blessings and curses and how things are not always what they seem. Uh, Most of us are familiar, I think, with the story of Balaam because we're, as children, introduced to his famous talking donkey. This is the only time an animal actually speaks in Scripture besides, you know, in the, in the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And this narrative in Numbers 22 actually covers three chapters, and so for the sake of time, I'm going to just summarize much of it for you. Uh, the book of Numbers chronicles Israel's wilderness wanderings. The Israelites, um, they lack the faith to enter the Promised Land. If you remember, Joshua and Caleb are exhorting them, just have faith, believe, God has promised this for us. And they don't have the faith. They get too scared. They hear reports about how big, you know, the Canaanites are. And in fear, they capitulate. And so for 40 years, they're wandering the desert. And that's what Numbers is really just um, talking about, speaking of. And they're wandering as a consequence of their sin because of their lack of faith. But God in his love and mercy still has his hand of protection over them. And apparently, this is striking fear across like all the surrounding 
pagan nations. And so in Numbers 22, the chapter opens with this man named Balak, who is the king of Moab. And he's attempting to hire this pagan prophet named Balaam. And apparently Balaam has, like, this Ph.D. in, like, dispensing curses. And so, I don't know, he, whatever he curses, he has this reputation. When he gives a curse, it sticks. And so he gets paid very well to, do, to, to curse people, to curse um, people for hire. And so Balak hires Balaam to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel as a way of protecting himself and his country from, you know, this perceived threat. So Balaam, although he's a pagan prophet, he consults with the Lord, and God makes it very clear. He says, you shall not curse the people, my people, for they are blessed. They're blessed. The king of Moab, Balak, he can't take no for an answer, and so he sends Balaam an offer that he can't refuse. More riches, he sends a caterer of princes, really tries to kind of wine and dine him. And then God allows Balaam to go through with at least seeing uh, the Israelites. And he meets this, you know, he takes his donkey, the donkey talks, he's stopped by an angel of the Lord, and the Lord gives him a very strict order that he's only to say what God specifically tells him to say. Okay? And it says this in Numbers twenty-two forty-one. In the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people, a fraction of the people. He couldn't see all the Israelites, but from the vantage point where he was, he could see a fraction of them. This is important. Please remember this. So they set up altars, they set up sacrifices, and then comes this anticipated moment uh, in Numbers. Balaam's about to issue his first oracle. Balak is rubbing his, his hands, and he's getting ready. He's like, okay, I'm going to take care of this problem, the Israelites. And Balaam puts out his hand and he starts to issue his first oracle. And he says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? Right? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. So there's a lot of humor in this, if you can actually capture it. Just think about this. Balak, the king, hires Balaam to issue a curse. Balaam goes up. He's about to do the dirty deed. And then Balak says, and instead he blesses them. And Balak's like, hold on a second. What are you doing? You're doing the exact opposite of what I paid you to do. Right? And then Balaam's response, Balaam's response is, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? He cannot, bless, he cannot curse them when God has already told him, you bless my people, you don't curse them. So what's going on here? We get a clue in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23. Um, Deuteronomy is really a sermon. It's the second um, giving of the law. And Moses' last sermon to the next generation of Israelites is really what the whole book of Deuteronomy is. They're about to enter the promised land. And he says this as he's looking back at this moment in history. And he says, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse 
and to a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So what did God do? He turned a curse into a blessing. Why did God do it? He says, because he loves you. He loves you. It's that simple. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is for you? That he is taking all things, all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, and he's working them for the good in your life. You know, I think if you asked me this question on January 8th, 2012, I'm not sure what my answer would have been. You know, we endured two near-death experiences when Kim was sick. She spent 43 nights in the hospital that year, um, intense chemotherapy regimen, touch and go in moments. And I realized there are a few things on this earth that, are, um, that feel more like a curse than cancer. You know, it's a horrific disease that will suck the life out of you. Some of you know this firsthand. But I want to ask you, have you ever felt like you were cursed? You know, some, maybe something's happened to you recently, an unexpected hardship, trial. Maybe you're feeling crushed under the weight of this. Maybe it's a job loss or the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a health issue, a financial issue, a broken marriage, a broken relationship. We all feel these curses in our life. And the reason why is very simple, actually. We are all living under a curse, in a sense. And it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember, when Adam and Eve refused God's love and rejected his word as the representatives of all of mankind, we call this the fall. Not only did they fall into sin, but they also fell under a curse. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve who fell under a curse. Satan falls under a curse. And we can't forget that all of creation falls under a curse too. And do you remember the sign of that curse when all creation is cursed? Genesis 3.17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And so the sign of the curse upon all of creation was thorns and thistles. And every time I'm weeding my yard, I think about this curse, and I curse that curse. <laughs> Thank God for Roundup. But uh, I want you to keep that in mind. The symbol, the physical symbol on earth of the curse is thorns and thistles. So Balak issues his first oracle. Balak, Balak gets very frustrated, and he says, okay, stop. Come with me. I'm going to take you to another place, and you can issue your curse there. So in 23 of Numbers, verse 13, he says, come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them. You shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And so Balak takes Balaam to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Verse 20 says, Behold, this is Balaam's second oracle, I received the command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. 
The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. Verse 24, he says, Behold a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it's devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Okay, at this point, Balak's getting really frustrated. He's like, stop, stop, stop. Don't curse them. Don't bless them. Just stop. And Balaam answers Balak, and he says the same thing again. He says, didn't I not tell you all that the Lord says, that I must do. Have you ever watched Austin Powers' gold member? <laughs> There's this scene where Austin Powers sees this, this, this mole agent, this agent who's a mole, and he literally has a huge mole on his face. When he enters, he just can't stop staring at this guy's mole. And so he's trying really hard not to say mole, but every time he sees him, he's like, mole. Nice to mole you. I mean, meet you. And he's like, he just can't get it out of his system. It's like every, the exact thing he doesn't want to say, he ends up saying. And, you know, this whole passage kind of reminded me of that scene because it's almost like, it's, it's humorous. It's funny. It's like, here's Balak getting so frustrated, and Balaam just keeps saying the exact opposite of what he wants to say. And then we get to the third oracle. This one is different from the others. Chapter 23, verse 27. Balak again tells Balaam, look, come here. Come with me. I'm going to take you to another place, much higher than the others. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the entire desert. Okay? And then Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, but he did not go at other times to look for omens. This time, Balaam sets his face on the wilderness. Balaam lifts up his eyes, and he sees Israel camping, tribe by tribe by tribe by tribe. For the first time, his view is completely unobstructed. And it says, The Spirit of God came upon Balaam, the oracle of him who hears the words of God. This is what he says. Who sees the vision of the Almighty? Falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. And so here, for the first time, he sees Israel in all of his glory, all of its glory, all the tribes, unobstructed. And he finishes the oracle by saying, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations. He crouched, he laid down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Okay, there's a lot here and I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. So, in the end, Balaam issues four oracles, but they're nothing like the ones that Balak had commissioned him to issue. In fact, the first few oracles really deal with the nation of Israel. It says, God brings them out of Egypt. God is for them like the horns of an ox. Israel is like a lion. So, Balaam, the first oracle, is issuing a prophecy of Israel, and he's speaking to a nation. But you remember, when he gets to the top of this mountain, the third oracle is very similar to the second, but there's one major difference. It shifts from a plural pronoun to a singular. 
something very significant is happening here. See, the only difference between the first, second, and third oracles is that Balaam finally climbs this mountain with Balak, and he gets a full, unobstructed view of the camp of Israel. And what happens? He says, the Spirit of God comes upon Balaam, and he cannot contain himself. Balaam is given a unique look into the future, and he no longer sees just a camp. He doesn't just see a nation. He sees a king. He no longer just sees a mass of people. He sees the Messiah. He no longer just sees the Jews. He sees Jesus. And Balak gets so angry at this point, Scripture says he strikes his hands together and he rebukes Balaam for going against his wishes. And Balaam again reminds him that he can only speak what the Lord speaks. And he issues a fourth oracle that looks even further into the future that's prophesying of this king. And he says, falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Clearly, Balaam sees something when he looks at the encampment of Israel that gets him very excited. The Spirit of the Lord reveals something to him in the future that's so glorious, he's about to explode. So what is it? What is he looking at? What is he seeing? Well, to unlock all this, you have to go back about 20 chapters to Numbers chapter 2. The book is called Numbers for some obvious reasons. It opens with a lot of numbers. It opens with a census of the nation of Israel. And most of us, I think, would gloss over this, but there's something very important that's going on here that we can't miss. God is describing in very specific terms how he wants the nation of Israel to camp in these first couple chapters. There are 12 tribes in addition to the priestly Levitical tribe, and there were to be four groups made up of three tribes each. Okay? 12 divided by three, four sections. I'm not going to get into the details. You can read this on your own, Numbers 1 and 2, if you want to see for yourself later. It's all right there. But Judah was the first group along with Issachar and Zebulun. And those three tribes, they totaled 186,400 people, and they were to camp on the east side. The second group was led by Reuben, joined with Simeon and Gad, and their tribe totaled 151,450 men, and they camped on the south side. The third group was led by Ephraim, and they were joined with Manasseh and Benjamin, and they combined a total of 108,100 men, and they camped on the west side. Lastly, the fourth group was led by Dan, along with Asher and Naphtali, and they totaled 157,600 men and camped on the north side. The Levites, they were set apart from the rest. They took care of the tabernacle. They had priestly duties. They camped in the very middle of those four groups, and they numbered 22,000. So here are the specific numbers. They tie to numbers one and two and their diagram of the encampment of Israel. Now, think like a Jew here. Okay, when God says you camp to the east, you can't just like spread out if there's too many people. You camp to the east. You don't camp to the southeast or northeast. You just go to the east. So if you have more people in your group than the other, you just go further out because you've got to stay east. You've got to stay west. You've got to stay directionally honest. And so what happens is, when you add this all up, this is what the camp of Israel looked like when they were camping. Now we can see why Balaam is so excited. 
and why at that moment the Spirit of God comes upon him and why his prophecy, when he sees it all, shifts from one of Israel to that of a king. It's a messianic prophecy. It's about Jesus. In 1,400 years before Jesus is born, this is what Balaam sees. Jesus is born in Bethlehem 1,400 years later. But God, in this moment, is revealing to the world, through the nation of Israel, how he was going to redeem creation from the curse of sin. Even in the midst of their wilderness wandering, God is making it clear. His providential hand is upon them. He has not forgotten them. He is full of grace and mercy. And it's no accident that despite Balak's wishes, Balaam, he cannot, he's unable to curse God's people. Why? Because God has blessed them. And not only this, he's showing the whole world something remarkable. That at the cross of Christ, God takes the greatest curse this world has ever known, has ever devised, a death on a Roman cross, and he transformed it into the greatest blessing that this world has ever known. It's the hope of nations. And no one in their right mind would have guessed it would be through a cross, this cursed instrument of death, and through his son, the giving of his life. And earlier, do you remember I told you that the sign of the curse over all creation was thorns and thistles? Well, if you recall, when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac, another angel of the Lord stops Abraham from doing so. You probably remember the story. It's a very popular one. But do you remember what the substitute is that God provides in the place of Isaac? It's a ram. What is a ram? Ram is nothing more than just a male sheep. And what is that male sheep caught in? His horns and his head are caught in a thicket, a bush of thorns and thistles. Now, I want you to fast forward 2,000 years when Jesus is crucified on the cross. Do you remember what is placed on his head? It's a crown of thorns. A crown of thorns. This was so much more than just a symbol to mock the deity of, or claim deity of Christ by the Roman soldiers. You see, God was demonstrating through all of this that through his son, he was going to lift the curse of sin and place it squarely on the head of his son. And through the cross, through his son's death, he was going to transform it into a blessing in which he is the sole provider and he offers the substitute for us. That's himself. We just sang that song, uh, The Weight of the Cross, the curse of our shame. He carried it all and rose from the grave. That is literal. That is a literal truth. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13 says, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, Last week, Pastor Reggie spoke on John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. And if you recall, just before this famous John 3.16 verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his son, 
Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, that story uh, in Numbers is actually the chapter right before this, Numbers chapter 21. And it's almost like God is saying, setting up this whole idea of blessing and curses. Because really, have you ever thought about why Jesus refers to himself as this serpent? Serpents are always bad, right? Serpent, Satan was a serpent in the Garden of Eden. That's how sin ultimately came about in the fall. And yet Jesus says, you need to believe just as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, you need to believe in me. What you realize is, when you study Leviticus, is you realize, yes, a serpent is a symbol of sin, but a bronze is a symbol of judgment in Leviticus because it's purified through the fire. And so a bronze serpent is different from just a serpent because it is a symbol of judgment and sin, sin being judged. That is exactly what the cross signifies, the judgment of sin, that is Jesus. And when you understand this, I think 1 Corinthians, oh, by the way, this is what the symbol of American Medical Association is, the symbol for healing, is that serpent on the cross. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just try to wrap your mind around that for a moment. God, perfect triune God, made him, his son Jesus, who was perfect and without sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what they call the change. We take on his righteousness, he takes on our sin. We take on his glory, He takes on our punishment. You know, Paul, the apostle, also speaks of a thorn as a curse. But he speaks of a thorn not on his head. He speaks of one that's in his flesh. We don't know if it's a literal thorn or a figurative thorn. Nobody really knows what it is. And I think, thankfully to God, we don't know what it is because it could be anything just like for us. And... What we learn through this thorn, Paul says, he prayed fervently for its removal. Um, but what we also find is Paul reflects upon this thorn on his side, and he says, this, pers- this curse has become a blessing. Because through it, what? He realized the all-sufficient power of God's grace. And that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Once again, we see a thorn We see a curse being transformed into a blessing. This is God's MO. This is the way he works. For those that are under his covenant, that are his people and his children, he takes a curse and he transforms it into a blessing. It's been uh, over three years now since my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Praise God, three years of remission. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many ways the Lord has transformed this curse 
into a myriad of blessings. And to be honest, her going into remission is probably the least remarkable. Um, I started a blog a few days after her diagnosis just to give health updates and share prayer requests because Gmail shut down my account because they thought I was spamming people with too many prayer requests. They thought I was just spamming people because I sent so many emails to people. So I set up a blog. And uh, on a whim, at the time, I remember thinking, you know, God is showing me so much. And I was just thinking, this is just in my heart. And I just called it seeing Jesus in everything. And I think some of you are familiar with it. Many of you in this church were praying for us during this time. And we're so thankful for that. And, you know, Kim's younger sister, Christina, was going here and asking for prayer. And many of you were so faithful in praying for us. And, you know, God did something really remarkable through that blog. And, you know, it was getting like 40,000 hits a month. Even today, it's like almost 300,000 hits. And we were getting all kinds of testimonies during our, during our cancer journey uh, from people who had been so touched by, you know, how we were walking through this difficult time by faith. And um, I'm not saying this to, to brag in any way or to boast about ourselves. Honestly, I really believe that so many people were praying for us that God just gave us extraordinary amounts of faith during a very difficult season in our lives. And that was truly a gift from him and from his church. And I can't say, you know, that, you know, we were great men and women of faith here. We just are normal people. I mean, I'm just a normal guy. My wife's a normal woman, you know, and we just are trying to live our lives for the Lord. And, you know, things like this happen. And we try to make sense of it just like anyone else does. But I remember two weeks into it, I wrote this on the blog because I was reflecting upon this cancer and, even in that short amount of time, I realized how God was taking this curse of cancer and transforming it into a blessing. And so even for my own edification, I just started writing down all the ways in which I was beginning to see that God had taken this curse of cancer and was turning it into a blessing. And I wrote this. I said, I haven't figured it all out, but I realized I can be thankful for cancer because of this. Through cancer, God has given me a renewed sense of his presence in my life. Through cancer, God has refocused my priorities to the things that matter. My faith, my family, my friends. Through cancer, God has forced me to my knees in daily dependence upon his grace and his provision. Through cancer, God has humbled me and revealed to me that I control little to nothing in my life. Through cancer, God has revealed within me a glimpse of Jesus by just tasting a small taste of the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Through cancer, God has given me a heart of love and compassion toward others in a way that I didn't even think was possible with this heart. Through cancer, God has helped me to see that God is neither ignorant of our suffering nor is he uncaring of our pain. Through cancer, God has demonstrated the great love of Christ through the body of Christ, his church, the bride. Through cancer, God has awakened me to the brevity of this life, and he's fostered a greater hope in the life that is to come. Through cancer, God has helped me to appreciate each new day as an unequivocal gift from God. Through cancer, God has made me not more bitter towards him, but more awed by his wonder. Through cancer, God has helped me to see Jesus in everything. Yes, even in cancer. 
You know, one of the most profound things I've learned through our cancer journey is that God is sovereign and that God is good. And you cannot put God and his ways in a box. So much, like I said, of our lives are wasted trying to evaluate something is good, something is bad, something is a blessing, something is a curse, when really all that the Lord desires from us is that we trust that he is in control when we are not, that he is good when we are not, that he is always, always working for the good, even if we are not, even if others are not, always. And so only the Christian, I believe, can truly say, it's all good. It's all good. Because it's really only true for the Christian. It is all good. Because we serve a God, good God who is always working for the good. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not preaching a wealth and health gospel here, a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that with faith and faithful tithing, you know, you're going to experience all the prosperity and all the material, you know, blessings of, of you know, that so many churches, unfortunately, uh, promise today. But what I'm saying is that as a child of God, we do not have to fear the bad, the ugly, or the unknown. We know that God is good. We know that he is working for our good. And we know that in the end, even if it's not this side of heaven, that everything that is wrong will one day be made right. Um, during our cancer journey, when Kim was sick, one of our friends, um, one of our really good friends, Jen and Rob Stotts, they were such a blessing to us. This is their family. And they were constantly praying for us, greeting us. And if you know the Stotts, Jen is like, she just has this constant smile on her face. You just cannot wipe it out, even if you tried. And it's infectious. And I remember... They were so faithful, giving us meals, praying for us. And uh, last year, we found out she, that her brother um, was stricken with cancer. And we felt like the least we could do is pray for them and return the favor. And what I found throughout is, as I was following them, praying for them, was that Bob, uh, he himself was a believer. And uh, he just struck me as a very godly man. Beautiful young family. Uh, and he just loved to serve the least of these. And I think that was proven by his dedication as a pediatric surgeon. And he just had a heart for medical missions. Well, long story short, um, Jen Stotz's brother, Bob, he passed away about a week and a half ago. Um, he fought cancer to the very end. And I got to say, the grace that he and his sister Jen displayed through all of it is truly a testimony of the indescribable hope and the peace that we have in Christ. And the outcome was not what we had hoped for. It wasn't what we prayed for. I know, but I know that in the end, God was glorified by their faith. And I share all this because, you know, last Sunday we got a message from Jen. And apparently, as soon as she got home from her brother's funeral, as soon as she just finished burying him, there was a letter waiting for her. And it was from Be the Match. And she was notified that she is a possible match for someone with cancer in need of a bone marrow transplant. And what, are the, what are the odds of that? To be a match is like one in a million. To get that letter after, from literally coming home from the funeral of her brother who died of cancer, only, only God could have done that. 
And Jen wanted us to know right away because she registered to be a bone marrow donor when Kim was sick back in 2012. And we were trying to get the word out and get people to sign up. We didn't even know at the time if Kim needed a bone marrow transplant or not. And obviously, the outcomes were very different for Kim and for Bob. And frankly, it's something that we don't understand why God would spare Kim's life, take Bob's life. They both love the Lord. But I know one thing remains the same. God. God is good. God is sovereign. God is near to the brokenhearted. And we see life in snapshots, just like Balaam did. We only see a fraction. But God sees the whole picture. And we try to evaluate the puzzle based on just a few pieces. God, this is a horrible puzzle. God, I don't know what you're doing. But you've got to remember, God created the entire design. And we only see in part, but one day the promise is that we shall see in full. And like Balaam looking down at the camp of Israel from the mountain, one day we will see in full. We'll see it all. And we will see how every perceived curse, tragedy, hardship in our lives, God took and he transformed into a blessing for us and for others, for our good and for his glory. And so I want to just close with three very simple applications. First, I want us to just stop. Let's stop trying to define what is a blessing and what is a curse in our lives. There's no such thing as a curse for the believer. We are free from the curse because Jesus assumed the curse on the cross on our behalf. And God is always working for the good, Romans 8.28, for those who love him. Two, I want us to thank God for everything. Let us thank him for everything, for every blessing, for every curse, perceived curse in our life. Thank him for it all. Paul says, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Is it because he's a sadomasochist? No. It's because he says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul understood probably better than anyone that God is always working for the good of those who love him. You know, we sang, blessed be your name. Though I'm found in the desert place and I walk in the wilderness, blessed be your name. We can bless his name even in those places because we know that even the curses, God is turning into blessings in our lives. Lastly, I want to commend us to bless others. Do not curse them. This is a command coming from Romans 12, 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And we're seeing this on other sides of the world. ISIS is killing Christians left and right today as we speak. And I'm so proud of so proud to
to call these brothers my brothers, to call these sisters my sisters. Because they're living this verse out in a way that we um, in America just cannot understand. Bless the who's who persecute you. Blessed do not curse them. Truly living out their faith, even in the death of their family, their loved ones, their own lives, testifying to the beauty and glory of the gospel. And we can do this, and they can do this, because of one simple reason, because Christ did it first. And it's because of the power of the gospel that we ourselves can do it. No one did it better than Jesus. When he was nailed to the cross, he forgave those who mocked him, who crucified him. So who are we to not do the same? We fight over the pettiest things in our marriage, in our families, with our friends, with our neighbors. Someone cuts us off on the road, we issue a curse. But the Lord says, bless those who curse you and persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. And there will be people in your lives, I'm sure everyone has some, who will wish harm upon you, who will do evil against you, but we're to bless them. And we're to remember that just like Joseph, even when they intend for evil, God intends for good. So if you can have the worship team come up, let's just close our eyes, bow our heads, and ponder these amazing truths. If you think about it, life can probably be summarized as a game of moving probabilities in our favor, right? Everyone wants to move the favorable outcomes to 100% certainty. And so we do our best to move it as close to 100% as possible. I mean, just think about it. We want a great spouse. We want healthy and happy children. We want a good-paying job and a meaningful career. And so we do everything in our lives and everything in our power to give ourselves an edge. We're trying to move positive outcomes towards our favor. You know, when we're in college, we stay up late, we study, so we can find a good job. As a single person, we invest in ourselves, the way we look. We want to find that perfect match, that soulmate. We want to be happy. As a married person, you know, it's about having a happy wife, having a happy spouse, living a happy marriage. And when we have children, it's signing up our kids for a myriad of extracurricular activities, sports, academics. We buy a home in a good school district. We purchase a car with, you know, highly rated safety features. So we can control the outcomes of their future too. We are living to move probabilities in our favor. And we are trying to push negative outcomes down. We want to have a say in our future. We want it to be a good future. But the truth is, none of us can control our future. It's only an illusion. None of us. Some of us in this room are sincerely struggling with the goodness of God and the hardness of life. Hardship, tragedy has come upon you like a bad dream, like an unwanted visitor. And we turn bitter because we've tried to play God and we realize we cannot. 
Some of us, we have a big decision looming before us. It's going to affect me. It's going to affect ourselves. It's going to affect our family many years into the future. We're anxious. We're nervous. We're worried about what might lie ahead. For all of us, I want us to remember this. God is good. God is working for your good. God is turning your perceived curses in the present into blessings for your future. We know that what man intends for evil, God can and God will turn out for good. And though we do not know what the future holds, we do know who holds the future. He alone knows the end from the beginning. He alone is our end and is our beginning. He is for us. He is not against us. He loves you. He loves you. He has a plan for you. It's a good plan. Receive his love. Be filled with his spirit. Walk in faith. God is good. His love endures forever. Let's just spend a few moments reflecting on those truths. 